But the next verse says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Hey, friend, if you've got Jesus, you've got everything that you need to make it through this life. Amen? Clap your hands unto the Lord as you stand as we go to the word of the Lord. While you're turning to the book of Matthew, book of Matthew chapter number 6, I, I gave you a scripture, see if you remember it, I gave you a scripture sometime last year, if you remember I quoted, quoted it quite a bunch. It was Philippians 2.14, it might have been two years ago now. It says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. It didn't say do some things. Anybody remember this verse? Do all things. Y'all don't know where I'm going with this. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Now, I'm trying to help you live for God. I'm going to give you another verse to add to your library of verses. So if that's the only verse you know, you fix and learn too. 1 Peter 4.15. This is a good one. Touch your neighbor and say, you need to listen to this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. We got that one covered. Or as a thief. I think we got that one. Or as an evildoer. I think we got that one. Or as a busy body. Mm. In other men's matters. I'm going to just drop that there for you. Chew on that for a little while. I'll come back to it after you've, it's, you've marinated in it one day. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Amen. Lord bless you. You can be seated. We have been digging digging into this matter of forgiveness. And don't you realize it's this kind of preaching that's not comfortable? I love shouting with the best of them. I love preaching faith and preaching miracles. I love the high stuff. But that's not all it takes to make it to heaven. It takes that practical application of the word. Now, hear me. We can talk in tongues all day long and be lost. Talking in tongues is for your spirit. It's how the spirit edifies itself. The word is for your mind. So if, if you're not if all you're doing is talking in tongues like a Chinaman and not reading the word, not heeding the word, putting it in your mind, your spirit may be being edified, 
but you're not putting anything in that can change that carnal mind. How do you get what you put in your mind to your heart on your knees? Because prayer is where you transfer what you're learning to what you're doing. Amen? So as we dig through this, we're putting information in, but then it takes prayer to transfer that from our brain into our heart and our life, and we start applying it to our life. Anybody left church before and your head hurt because there was so much stuff talked about? You're like, ah, oh, my brain is overloaded. You go to prayer and you transfer it to get it into your heart and you start applying it. If you remember, I spoke about a survey by the Barner Research Group and the majority, which was 96% of those surveyed, agreed with one or more of the survey statements. Now, I'm not asking you if you agree or not. I'm reading with this, what the, the survey said. All four of the survey statements are biblically wrong. This clearly illustrates the subject or the depth of misunderstanding that surrounds the subject of forgiveness. So tonight I'm going to start revisiting these statements. And if you weren't here, I'm fixing to tell you what they are. And then we're going to start breaking them down. We're going to clarify. Number one, the first statement is regarding forgiveness and repentance. And they said, you cannot honestly forgive someone unless that person shows some remorse for what they did. And 62% of those surveyed agreed with that statement. Then there was the subject of forgiveness and consequences, which stated if you really forgive someone, you would want that person to be released from the consequences of their actions. And that's 60% of those surveyed agreed with that. Then there's forgiveness and reconciliation, which states if you genuinely forgive someone, you should try to rebuild your relationship with that person. And 73% agreed with that. Now, all of these statements, most of us have probably heard throughout life, and we think they're biblically accurate, but we're going to dissect them. Then there's the fourth, which is forgiveness and forgetting, which says if you have really forgiven someone, you should be able to forget what they have done to you. And 66% of those surveyed agreed with that. So let's start with forgiveness and repentance. It says you cannot honestly forgive someone unless that person shows some type of remorse for what they've done. Now, what about those who never ask for our forgiveness? Okay. What about those who won't even acknowledge that they're wrong? Should they expect to receive forgiveness from us? Or more importantly, should we be required to give it? In other words, here's what we've got to ask ourselves. Is repentance a requirement for granting forgiveness to others. Can you honestly forgive someone who is unaware that they even hurt you? Or is unmoved by the fact that they offended you? Or that they're unwilling to admit their mistake? 
or that they're unable to ask forgiveness because of illness or death. I'm trying to open up your understanding to this subject tonight. There are at least three faulty arguments people use for demanding repentance before granting forgiveness. One of them that they'll say is, well, forgiveness needs to be earned. Those who demand their offender earn forgiveness by demonstrating sorrow or some type of remorse are operating under the illusion that somehow their offender's repentance will be sufficient to cover the offense. And the words, I'm sorry, may bring momentary relief to a wound, but they are insufficient in themselves to affect permanent healing. And salvation is a lot like that. We are not saved because we told God we're sorry. We're saved because God chose to forgive us. I'm sorry doesn't make it right. What makes it right is forgiveness has entered the equation. This is why the, the scripture says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God chose to forgive us. We're not saved because we went to an altar and said, I'm sorry. We're saved because the mercy of God the grace of God chose to forgive us of our wrongdoing and our sins. Secondly, they'll say forgiving an unrepentant person invites further abuse. Okay, aren't those who forgive their offender before he expresses any remorse kind of, kind of like wearing a kick-me sign? Aren't we doing a fundamental disservice to both the offender and ourselves by absolving his sin without at least waiting for a sincere apology. What's being overlooked with this kind of thinking is the very nature of grace itself because it is a deliberate decision to give something good to somebody who does not deserve it. That's what grace is. It's you have to choose. You're not earning what I'm going to give you. You don't deserve what I'm going to give you. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. That's what God did to us when it came to salvation. Nobody deserved salvation. But he said, I'm going to give you what you did not deserve. And that is another opportunity. Grace invites abuse, but God still chose to take the risk with us anyway. It's up to us whether we abuse his gift of forgiveness or not. And it's also up to our offender whether he abuses our forgiveness toward him. This is why Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Maybe you know someone in your life. Maybe it's a family member. Doesn't matter. You, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It's like you keep helping. You keep helping. You keep helping. And they keep messing up and messing up and messing up. 
And you just get so frustrated with them. What you're really saying is, they're frustrating my grace. That's what Paul said. He said, I don't want to frustrate the grace of God by, he forgives me, I keep doing it. He forgives me, I keep doing it. Same application in our life. We, and we're not God. We run out of grace way faster than God does. We put an X on people with a Sharpie. Done. Ain't coming off. The downside of forgiveness is that it invites further abuse. But the upside is that it exposes us and teaches us a higher way of living. Romans 5, 20 and 6 and 1 says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Grace is not a license for us to do whatever we want and then always think that we can run to an altar. Grace is a safety net for when we do mess up and we do fall and we do make mistakes, we should understand that we don't have to hang our head down like, like whipped children, but we can come to God with boldness, understanding that we have an advocate with the Father and there is a door for forgiveness for our life. The third argument is forgiving an unrepentant person is unscriptural. Well, the strongest argument people offer for demanding repentance or an apology before offering forgiveness is that the Bible seems to require it. After all, God requires us to acknowledge our sin before he forgives us and we are to forgive others in the same way God has forgiven us. So people will say that they it, it's, it's an unrepentant person. Forgiving an unrepentant person is unscriptional. They'll say, then we shouldn't, then shouldn't we require our offender to repent before we forgive him? That seems logical. But this kind of thinking fails to note a very important distinction because there's a crucial difference between receiving forgiveness and granting forgiveness. Two different things. The issue of repentance is vitally important to receiving forgiveness, but totally irrelevant to granting forgiveness. In other words, repentance is required for the offender, but should not be required by the offended. Y'all with me? All right, let me give you a scripture. Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth his love toward us. When? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God offered his forgiveness before we ever asked for it. Because we are the offending party. You didn't ask God for forgiveness when you were born, but he said, I know you're a sinner. I'm going to go ahead and give you forgiveness anyway. 
You didn't ask God forgiveness when you were running away from him, but he said, while you're yet a sinner, I'm going to go ahead and offer that unconditional forgiveness. Hear me, from God's viewpoint, biblical forgiveness is unconditional. The best reason to forgive unconditionally is the emotional and spiritual healing that it brings to our life. So often when people think about forgiveness, they think about what it's going to do for somebody else. But what they don't realize is that forgiveness is really an act of self-interest because we're doing ourselves a favor when we cut ourselves loose from being an emotional victim of somebody else's wrong. Listen to me. Anybody ever run a three-legged race? Anybody ever tried to walk in a three-legged race? When you're attached to someone who has offended you, it's like trying to navigate through life in a three-legged race with that person and y'all are not walking in harmony. And they're pulling you all over emotionally. And you cannot have any type of peace because you're just you're tied to something that's not worth being tied to. And when you af- release that person, it's like cutting that rope off that those legs and you're no longer tied to something that's dragging you around through life, but you're walking in the liberty that God designed for you to walk in. I'm talking to people that you have been tied to people for years. You have let them you have let them drag your emotions. You have let them drag your mind. You have laid in bed at night and lost sleep over people that are out living their life. They're sleeping good. You're not. And God's saying, if you'll just forgive them, if you'll just release them, they'll no longer have power over you. Amen. Whether our offender repents or not is between them and God. Don't let their wrong become an issue between you and God. Don't let their wrong become an issue between you and God. So that's forgiveness and repentance. So let's look at forgiveness and consequences. It says if you really forgive someone, you would want that person to be released from the consequences of their actions. One of the greatest barriers to forgiveness is the myth that forgiving someone automatically frees them from any consequences of their actions. Such a misunderstanding makes so many people hesitant to forgive or condemns them to a lifetime of unnecessary bitterness. Now, I want, I, I'm fixing to really start digging, and you've got to stay with me, okay? What about the church treasurer? who is caught embezzling funds from the weekly offerings. If he publicly confesses and pays the money back, then shouldn't the church restore him to his position if they've really forgiven him? What about the convicted child molester who has paid his debt to society and now wants to work in the Sunday school department? Is the church really demonstrating forgiveness if they restrict him from working with children for the rest of their life? What about the murderer who gets saved on death row if the victim's family has truly forgiven him for his crime? Shouldn't they be petitioning the courts for his release from jail? 
Have they really forgiven him if they want his sentence still to be carried out? The same dilemma lies behind each of this of each of these scenarios I presented to you. Does forgiveness automatically erase the consequences of sin? Have I truly forgiven someone if at the same time I insist they be held accountable for their actions? The answer to this dilemma is found in the important distinction between two words. I want you to listen to me. Here's the two words. Vengeance and justice. Vengeance is my desire to see another person suffer for the pain that they've caused me. And the Bible consistently warns against harboring this kind of feeling in our hearts. Romans 12 and 9 says, Dear friends, one translation, don't try to get even. Let God take revenge. In the scripture, the Lord says, I am the one to take revenge and pay them back. It says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance, all right? So let's look at justice. Justice is the payment God or society might demand from someone because of a wrong they have committed against us or against society as a whole. While we are to avoid vengeance, the Bible teaches us to seek justice for those who have been wronged. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, fight for the rights of widows. So there's a big difference between vengeance and justice. And this is where the lines get blurred in our minds. So vengeance is our personal desire for retribution against the offender. But justice is the repayment another person demands from our offender. Vengeance strives to settle the debt ourselves. But justice allows someone else to settle the score. Vengeance leads to bitterness, but justice leads to healing. All right? Y'all with me? God says that I am supposed to surrender my desire for vengeance, but I can never surrender society's responsibility to seek justice. The Bible teaches us that in addition to God, the government and the church are to be administrators of justice in our society. God deals with us the same way. Watch this. When God forgives us, he removes the eternal consequences of our sin, but not necessarily the temporal consequences of our sin. Put it like this. We have had people in our jail services get baptized in Jesus' name, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, experience the forgiveness of God. But does that mean that we open the door and say y'all are free? No. They are forgiven, but they still have to go through the process of legal justice, which means if they spend the rest of their life in jail, it doesn't mean that God did not forgive them. 
It doesn't mean that people did not forgive them. It means that their eternal consequences, which is separation from God for eternity, living in hell, God says, I'm going to remove the eternal consequences. That's, that's vengeance. God says, I'm going to take away. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to punish you. I'm forgiving you. But you still have to deal with the justice or the temporal consequences here on earth. Why would a forgiving God or, of a, or, or a forgiving person still allow someone to suffer such consequences? All right? Think about this. Consequences promote order in society. What would our world be like if there were no laws, no penalties, no red lights, chaos? When I went to the Philippines and to Ma's body, it was the absence of rules on the road. Seriously, I'm not joking. I got videos. Stress me out. Because I get motion sickness really easily. And it was just open roads and get in the car and drive as fast as you can. No police. And everybody just going around different directions. We smoked a dog on the way home from church. That pastor said, dog went this way, should have went this way. It was chaos. The absence of rules. Consequences promote order in society. Think about your children. If there were no rules and you, and you just said, y'all do whatever y'all want. Do whatever you want. You couldn't even live in that house. It'd be chaos. Genesis 9 and 6 says, whoever sheds man's blood by man." His blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Consequences serve as a deterrent to others. Fear of consequences is perhaps the most powerful incentive for obedience. You know why kids do good? Is they've figured out if I do bad, there's consequences. There was a man that used to come into our feed store years ago. Cuss like a sailor. About every third word was a, was a bad word. I mean, he couldn't hear, and he didn't care who heard him. And he was a fighter pilot in World War II. And you had to fly 20 missions, and then you got to go home. He flew 19 missions, and they said after this next mission, his 20th mission, he was going to go home. He had already wrote letters and sent them off to his mom. I'm gone. Well, he got shot down over Vienna, Austria on his 20th mission. And he spent, I think it was over a year in a concentration camp. And he told me, and, and, and please do not misunderstand what I'm fixing to say. Okay, I'm not advocating for Hitler. I'm not advocating for Nazi. It, he was pure evil. I'm using this for an illustration purpose. This man said, I, I made friends with Germans. He said to make friends with the soldiers. He said they were serving their country just like I was serving my country. He said, what does it mean they were bad people? He said, but what I figured out overseas is what they did was if you did wrong, you died. 
So people stopped doing wrong because they didn't want to die. What they understood was there's consequences. Consequences deter others from doing wrong. Consequences prevent us from further disobedience. This is what the Bible says. Now, listen to this, 1 Timothy 5.20. Anyone who sins, this is Bible, should be rebuked in front of the whole church so that others will have a proper fear of God. Now, that scripture right there is not practiced much in churches. But if I stood somebody up in this service and begin to openly rebuke you for what I found out that you did, how many people do you think would show up the next service? It'd be a bomb scare in here. Because you'd be afraid I'd stand you up and openly rebuke you. But you know what the Bible says? Open rebuke is better than secret love. I know a girl years ago who got called out, and I mean got called out by an evangelist in a service and told her what spirit she had on her and told her mama exactly what was going on. I mean... You talk about uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. And everybody thought that she'd be mad. And this is what she said. She said, I don't care if I got called out if it means I can make it to heaven. That's the way it should be. I'd rather be embarrassed and saved than prideful and lost. God regularly uses the consequences of sin to bring us back into a right relationship with him and keep us there. Watch this. This is what the Bible says, Psalm 119, 67. I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. When David sinned, with Bathsheba. The man of God confronted him. Y'all remember the story? Because he didn't bow up and get mad, he humbled his heart in humility and repentance. God said through the man of God, all right, there's consequences. His child's going to die. But then there's going to be a Solomon that comes. And those those consequences prevented him from further disobedience because you don't read of it happening again. Yes, it was painful. Yes, David cried over the loss of that child. But it corrected his course and put him back in line. Chuck Swindle said this. He says, if I sin, and in the process of sinning, I break my arm. When I find forgiveness from sin, I still have to deal with a broken arm. You still have to deal with some of the fallout. 
Doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It means there's consequences you got to deal with. You remove a nail from a board, it's still going to leave a hole. It's there. You still got to deal with it. If you're struggling with hurts inflicted by someone else, you've got to release your desire for vengeance and let God or others pursue justice. I want to I want to share a verse with you real quick. This verse has guided me. Let me find it. I don't want to give you the wrong verse. How many's ever had a situation where you knew someone was doing wrong and you just wanted them to get caught? You wanted, I mean, you just wanted them to pay for their actions. Watch this. I'm telling you. That was in a situation where it was eating me alive. I just wanted them to be exposed. And this is what the Lord brought me to this scripture one day. Proverbs 24, 16, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Verse 17, Rejoice not when thy enemy falleth. It's about time he got caught. It's about time she was exposed. What is that? That's that heart leaping up. I just knew it. I knew it. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. And let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Watch this. Next verse. Lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And God says, all right. Because you're happy about it, I'm backing away from it. And he turned away his wrath from him. God says, if it's going to make you happy, you're supposed to have the same love that I have for people. You're supposed to have the same compassion and forgiveness that I have for people. And here you are getting excited at somebody else's fall, somebody else's stumble, Somebody else's mess up. And God says, because you, you're gloating in it and you're excited about it, I'm not going to do nothing about it. I'm going to let him get off scot-free. That's how some people can go through life and God never executes judgment on them down here. Now hold it. It doesn't mean they're getting off without being judged. God says, some things I'm going to deal with down here and some things is going to follow them the other side, and I'll deal with it over there. But everybody is going to be dealt with. We've got to make certain that we do not rejoice over somebody else's downfall. If, you're, if, you're, if you desire forgiveness, don't be discouraged over the lingering consequences of your sin. Instead, you view them as a gift designed to keep you close to a God who loves you. Amen? There's things 
situations. I, I, I remember one, one particular story. This pastor was pastoring up in another state, and he had a lady who, this is a metro area, she sold encyclopedias. Anybody still remember encyclopedias? They're before Google, okay? Then you went to the encyclopedia to find out information. And she sold these sets. Well, she stole money from the profit. She, in other words, she said, you know, she might have sold 10 and said, I sold four or six or whatever before she came to the Lord. And when she got the Holy Ghost, it was eating her alive. Now, this is what the Bible says. He who stole, steal no more. In other words, if she came to God and God forgave her and she stopped doing it, she could have walked in a new life in Christ. Okay? But it was just eating away at her conscience that she did that. And so she sought advice from the man of God. And she didn't want to go confess and go to jail. So he said, here's what I would recommend you doing. Out of every sale, set aside of money. And just anonymously send the money back until you have paid off what you have stolen. And you have paid restitution. And it's done. It's covered with the blood. You have paid it back. And not all circumstances are that easy. If a guy came right here and came to me, got the Holy Ghost, we prayed him through, baptized in Jesus' name, and he tells me I just murdered somebody on my way to church. And the law showed up. I have to say, I'll put some money on your books. I love you. God forgave you. But that doesn't mean you're free from the consequences of what you've done. Forgiveness. God grants that. God wipes away vengeance. But he allows justice to be served. Stand with me now. I, there's no way I can finish. And I, I'm at a point now, if, if I keep going, we're going to be here till 9 o'clock tonight. So... Musicians, if you come.